It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome back. Good to have you with us for episode number 52 of the Wheelhouse Podcast. I'm Aaron Goldsmith inside of the Team Hotel in beautiful, sunny Minneapolis. We are here in the Twin Cities recording this in advance of Wednesday's Game 2 against the Twins. Jerry DePoto is back inside T-Mobile Park. Jerry, do I understand you were in the Griffey Room as we speak right now? I, I am, in fact, in the Griffey Room. And having been in the lovely hotel in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, you may be in the Bob Dylan room or the Prince room. Uh, they have some awesome setups in that hotel that celebrate the uh, the careers of, of legendary Minnesotans. You know, I think uh, I just happened to get just a regular old room. So I'll keep my eyes open for the, <laughs> for the, I, the I, I promise ones. you they exist. Yeah. I'll, I'll ask around, but that's good to know. Well, a reminder, you can always uh, subscribe to the podcast. We certainly hope you do so wherever you get your podcast. Uh, this one is an audio-only episode of The Wheelhouse, but keep an eye out for us. We'll be back on Root Sports uh, coming up uh, next week. Jerry, we've got some things to cover uh, today on The Wheelhouse, but specifically the draft. And just a listener note, we will be getting more kind of into the nitty-gritty on some of the players more in particular coming up in our next episode. We're going to utilize today's just to kind of get an overarching view of the process and the results from the draft, Jerry. Uh, you and Scott Hunter and the rest of your crew ended up drafting 41 players, and we saw some pretty clear trends. 33 of the 41 players come from the college ranks. 23 of the 41 players are pitchers, including 12 of your first 14 picks. Is this a uh, kind of what you guys had in mind going into the draft, or is this just kind of how the cards fell for you to go this uh, specifically pitcher heavy? Well, I, I guess a little of both of those. And, you know, during our last episode when we sat down and, and talked, we have a, a general draft philosophy that inside the top 100 picks, we're trying to take the biggest upside we can find uh, wherever that is. And if it's a high school player, it's a high school player. If it's a college player, it's a college player. You know, we do have some reservation in, in, I guess, in the way we measure demographic, the 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 draft classes. You have college position players and college hitters, high school pitchers and high school position players. What history teaches us is that the attrition rates for a lot of those players are a little bit different, and uh, we and by and large, the biggest upside, you can ask Ken Griffey Jr., the biggest upside is if you take the the top high school hitters in the draft, generally wind up giving you the biggest rewards. But, you know, closely thereafter come the the college players, the guys who both the pitchers and the position players, they, they generally are very strong, stable picks at the point we were picking around 20. And we had our eye on a couple of high upside high school bats that went off the, the board before we had an opportunity to pick. And 
when it got down to our pick at 20, it was pretty evident for, I would say, well over an hour before our pick that we had focused in on George Kirby. And, you know, we knew that that George, he was in our mix from the start, not knowing exactly who was going to be there. We had narrowed our list down to about three or four players, believing that they might be there in our range. And, you know, our, our strategy afterward, we thought this draft pool pushed us in a direction. Our strategy afterward was that when we get down to it and we have a 50-50 decision, you know, or even a 55-45 type decision, take the picture because we were trying to build depth. And in a draft that wasn't widely celebrated for the high-end impact, every draft, when you start getting into the second, third, fifth, eighth rounds, every draft has big leaguers. They have guys that are going to make impact at the highest level. And we remain focused and, I guess, diligent on just hammering away at the pitching, believing that it, in the end, we're going we're gonna to maximize our returns by, by giving ourselves the opportunity to fail. Because not everyone is going to make it the way you hope they will. But we feel like from the first round, really through the, the 12th, 15th round of this draft, we stayed very focused with a plan in mind and we drilled it. And we feel like we pulled a lot of big leaguers out of this group and some we feel are going to have impact, including the guy at the top. Is the first round, Jerry, the easiest round for you and everyone else in the room? There's, I, I would say it's the easiest because we know the most about those players. They're, you know, they're most often, you know, the top 50 players in the draft, we spend so much time scouting them, so much time talking about them. And, you know, at the end of the day, the first round may be the more complicated because there are so many things in this draft system. You know, the slotting system that, that currently is employed by Major League Baseball, it has created we're working from a pool of, of dollars, our allocation. Each of those dollars is designated for a slot in the top 10 rounds. And since this new system was put in place in 2012, you get a lot of teams that are navigating to try to maximize their draft picks. And what was otherwise always believed to be at the top of the draft, pick the best player, sign the best player, and then go develop him. Sometimes now we're dealing with pick the fifth best player, sign them to a deal that that looks more like the 20th best player, and then redistribute the, the savings in that slot deeper into the draft to, to get higher end talent. And you can use that dollar leverage to start pushing talented players back to the, to the comp round, to the second round of a draft. And it's a strategy really that, that the Houston Astros, I think, employed incredibly well during the early years of, of this administration with the Astros. And they had a lot of extra picks to do it with. They, they had a lot of comp picks and a lot of, of round B picks. And they were able to leverage that into, a, a, frankly, a, a, a wide pool of talent. The league is continues to do that. It's a little more subtle today because the rules of engagement have changed a little bit and there are fewer comp picks available to us. And you know, what we tried to do in this draft was just make sure that we took the best combination of upside and probability in their ability to, to start filling through our system. And we felt like this group of college pitchers that existed in the, the early rounds of this draft were just as attractive as most years pitchers that, that, that go through, let's call it the back end of the first round 
through the fifth round. And there's the, the guys we took, the George Kirby's, the Brandon Williamson's, the, the Levi Stout's, the, the Tim Elliott's and, you know, guys like that have Isaiah Campbell guys like that have huge value the day they're drafted. They have huge value when they wake, make their way through and, and make it toward the big leagues. And we think two or three of them are going to be really fast movers because they're super polished college guys. For those who have not been inside the war room, which is basically probably everyone listening, I mean, there's a lot going on. There are a lot of tablets, a lot of computer screens, plenty of whiteboards, and a lot of people, a lot of men and women who have spent um, countless man hours getting ready for this draft. With that being said, with all the conversations, all the discussions that go on over the course of the three days, Jerry, is there a particular exchange, conversation, moment uh, that whether it be for its humor or for possibly its lasting impact for the organization, time will tell, and that really stands out to you the most from this 2019 draft process? You know, there always are. We have so, when you're in there, we're in there for roughly two and a half weeks, anywhere from 10 to 12 hours a day, no weekends. (laughs) We work straight through on Saturdays and Sundays. And you're going to get into moments in a draft room where the passion, the debate starts flying around and, and you have to take a break. It, I, I've, I've joked around, you know, the old, the old uh, black and white movie, the 12 angry men, it, it can sometimes represent the 12 angry men because you're going to get a juxtaposition between player A and player B that's unsolvable because when you have a group of scouts that, that has really sunk their teeth into player A and believe that this is the right way for the team to go and the other side of the room believes in player B, you can't really be a mediator in that moment. And oftentimes we'll we'll just try to raise our hand. And my general thought is more often than not, the, the draft takes care of it and we don't have to worry about it. So infrequent is it that the two players you're you're hottest about wind up sitting there on the table for you to choose from. By the time you get there, somebody else chose one of them, and now you just spent three days arguing over nothing. <laughs> but uh, for pure comedic value, I, I think I've shared this before. Uh, I, the the most I think one of the the funny nuances in our room is the number of peppermints and toothpicks that Scott Hunter, our scouting director, will go through during a draft, just trying to keep himself occupied because it is as the, as you get closer to draft day and the crescendo starts to build, particularly the day before when now the agents start getting engaged and, and we're, we're navigating players through the draft. And it almost turns into a scene from Jerry Maguire that, that the, the, the the peppermints and and toothpicks kind of keep him sane and calm when it gets down to the comedy in the room, it usually comes from Tom McNamara, <laughs> who is the T-Mac is our resident uh, comedian in the draft room without really intending to be the comedian. And some of what what he will say in the moment will go so far off, uh, so far off on a tangent. And we'll start covering players from early 1970s New York Mets to players he saw in the draft five years ago. And by the time we come full circle, the, the general look in the room is staring at each other and thinking, let's go eat lunch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mac, Mac I, I, I probably couldn't come up with one specific, but Mac is awesome for keeping the room loose, for saying the funny thing. And 
And, and we're also blessed to have uh, one of our cross-checkers, supervisors, Mark Loomis, who has been with the, the Mariners for uh, well over two decades. Has he, he does a remarkable job. And one of Mark's gifts is his ability to keep the room loose. And oftentimes when we are presenting players and we're running through them, Mark winds up at the board. And when I say at the board, we're running these these players' names, their their draft tag up and down our list. And Mark is oftentimes, he's our Vanna White. He's the one who's parading the tag in front of the group and moving it up and down the board. And his wit, how quickly he puts words together and some of the some of the things he will say working into a player is I, it, it makes you laugh. It eases the tension because inevitably we're making emotionally difficult decisions that are that are multi-million dollar risks higher low in in their nature. And having that type of comedic value in the room is is a must. You have to have it. Well, we know a little bit about the First day, guys, the top-round draft picks for the Mariners, as we mentioned, a lot of them very pitcher-heavy. But, Jerry, is there somebody who maybe came on day two, who knows, maybe even came day three of the draft, that is beneath the fold, a little bit more off the radar, significantly more off the radar, that has caught your eye, that maybe was a flyer, but you're thinking this is somebody who has got some pretty big upside that we're really excited about that nobody's talking about? Well, we always get those guys. And I, and I would say that most teams feel strongly when they come out of the draft that they get those guys. But our scouting group does a phenomenal job in the middle rounds of a draft and, and always have. We, we always have very interesting players. Frankly, a lot of the reason why we've been able to make so many trades in the last three or four years is because the guys we're taking in the middle rounds of the draft turn into pretty interesting prospects. And uh, this year's no different. Uh, the first that I would cite in, in that type of category, the nobody's talking about him, but this is a really interesting upside play, is uh, right fielder, right hand reliever by the name of Ty Adcock, who is a, a teammate of George Kirby's at Elon. And Ty was a two way player, I think, led the Elon uh, club with in home runs and RBI, also led the team in saves. And as a two-way guy, he's a senior, he's 22 years old. As a two-way guy, he really didn't get a ton of exposure. Uh, as, as a result, we were able to nab him in the eighth round, I believe, and his fastball gets up near 100 miles an hour now. The, the breaking ball, we qualify within our internal metrics. You know, We get all the track man feeds and the spin rates in addition to our scout opinions. And we qualify Ty Adcock as having a fastball that averages somewhere around 95 miles an hour, tops out at 98, 99. He has a breaking ball that we think is a now above average major league pitch. He's athletic. He does all the things that you want to see. We're excited about what his career might lead to if he's just allowed to develop as a pitcher instead of instead of the, the mix between the two. Uh, I guess the next guy that would come into play is someone we considered much earlier in the draft. But again, like where we started, when it came down to those 50-50 decisions or even 55-45s, we opted in favor of the pitcher this year. You know, the other player that we were able to get on on day two, actually it was day three, was Carter Benz. It, it was a, a catcher who we feel like has the all of the the tools and the performance traits to grow into a major league 
average catcher. And, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. Last year we took Cal Raleigh in the draft. We took Jake Antia toward the, the back half of day two. We feel like Ben's fits in very well with Carter and Jake and some of what we have going on at the upper levels, particularly in the big leagues with Omar and Tommy Murphy, Tom Murphy and, and, and the development of, of Austin Nola in Tacoma, which has been a nice, pleasant surprise for us. You know, that, those combinations of events have really built out our catching depth in a way that we're excited about. I'm really curious about uh, Ty Adcock, you mentioned. I'm curious a couple of things, Jerry. First of all, for a guy who's rushing it up there nearly triple digits, how does he last until the eighth round? And also, how does he not get drafted his junior year? Did, did I hear you right that he was a senior this year? Yeah, he's he, again twenty-two years old, and I, I couldn't tell you if he's a if he is a twenty-two-year-old senior. I think he's a redshirt junior okay. who happens to be twenty-two. Um, the so he actually does have another year of eligibility left. But in in the end, with with Ty, I think the reason he lasts this far into a draft is because when you get those two-way players, the collegiate two-way players. And the second part of the two-way is relief pitcher. It'd be a little bit different. If I, if I flash back to my draft era, and it's John Olerud, who is one of the best starting pitchers in the country, and he throws on Friday nights at Washington State, and then is also, by the way, like the best hitter in the country, <laughs> and you know, and hits in the middle of the lineup. Uh, it, that is a different form of two-way player. The, you know, the college reliever isn't really a sexy draft. The college relievers outside of the, we'll call it the premium guys, the, the extreme strike throwers with high-end stuff who are perceived to be on the fast track. And then I could go back to the like the Chad Cordero era, the, a number of guys that pitched down at Rice and the University of Houston in the, in the earlier part of the 2000s. That really hasn't been a big thing lately. I, I guess two years ago, it was, uh, it was Birdie from Louisville. It, that's really not as predominant in the draft today. And the college relievers tend to go more between the sixth and ninth round. So the higher end college relievers have settled in that part of the draft. And in the case of Ty Adcock, he was, he was playing as a two-way guy. We actually had him in as a prospect as a right fielder. And, you know, I think there was some skepticism as to which one he he was better at or or which one he would choose to do and we contacted him and and clearly our preference was to develop him as a pitcher but you know, it's it'd be nice to have a, a pitcher who can also do things athletically that weren't being considered a prospect as an everyday player too I, how he lasts until the eighth round I think it's some combination of the fact that he still has imperfect, if unrefined, uh, control, command of his fastball. And because he didn't throw enough innings, the volume of innings for teams to scout him, the nuance with, with college relievers is that you have to be there in the park to see them. And scout as it works out, scouting directors and supervisors tend to hop. So... For instance, you may go into Elon on Friday night to see or on Saturday to watch George Kirby uh, pitch. And on that day, when George Kirby comes out of the game, you just generally the scouts get up and go to the nearest high school big game because they might be able to get two at bats with one of the, you know, the nearby prospects. And therefore, mid major or lower, I guess, lower division relief pitchers tend to fly under the radar because not enough scouts get to see them pitch. Uh, 
there's in Ty's case, he only pitched that toward the tail end of the games when Elon had the lead and the lead was close enough that they wanted to remove him from right field to put him on the mound. So if he were pitching at one of the bigger baseball programs in the country, let's say if he were doing that same thing for UCLA, we feel like Ty probably would have been a third round draft pick. But the fact that he was doing it at Elon and those, and the generally the scouts are skipping, a little bit different story, if that makes any sense. No, that's a really good explanation of it. Really, really very good. We're excited to keep our eye on Ty Adcock and Carter Benz. Good stuff there. Well, Jerry, there's some been some fun stories going on at the major league level for your ball club over the last few days. The Mariners taking two games out of three against the Angels to begin this road trip. And in the process of doing so, Edwin Encarnacion, who has hit more home runs this month uh, at last look than about four or five major league teams have in the month of June. Uh, he hit number 400 on his career the same day that he hits 399. Uh, by the way, a ninth-round draft pick, Edwin Encarnacion. So I guess you never know what you might find after that first day of the draft. Uh, this has been a really fun first half to watch Edwin Encarnacion, who has, I don't know, Jerry, what are your thoughts? Kind of somehow quietly hit 400 home runs in his major league career, if that's even possible to do. <laughs> Edwin Encarnacion's career, like, like the, the his career to date, and clearly we're seeing it, it's not over. Uh, Edwin Encarnacion has been, first of all, he's, he's delivered a 900 OPS. He's leading the American League in home runs. His June has been phenomenal, I think, to the tune of, uh, of something approaching a 900 slugging percentage or something absurd like that. Uh, Edwin has been on a hot streak, but really he has been progressively better each month which is his trend line. This is what Edwin Encarnacion does. And, and he's been doing this for a decade. And I, I think most people would get it wrong when you ask the question, you know, who's at the top of the major league homers list for over the last seven years. And Edwin's right there. And he's been doing this. He's been doing it to degree under the radar in Toronto. It's, it's hard to believe that a team that played in two postseasons with, with Edwin Encarnacion plays in the American League East would be under the radar. But I think there is some of that in this case. He was also playing with two other superstar players through the course of that time in, in Jose Bautista and Josh Donaldson that, to a degree, make him seem just one of the crowd instead of a driving force in a game. So I... I I think Edwin Encarnacion goes underappreciated because of some of those factors. You look at his numbers now and you look at his numbers at the end of 2019. And my guess is, like I said, it's going to go on after 2019. And there's no reason to believe it's slowing. And it starts to look an awful lot like a compelling case to, to be discussed as a Hall of Famer. He's, he's putting up a terrific career. He has played both first base and third base. I think he is... Uh, he's doing a lot to certainly tell the league, I can still play a defensive position. And he's hitting the ball as hard as he's ever hit it. He's making great swing decisions. And right now in a lineup that has been very turbulent for the last six or seven weeks, Edwin has been, you know, along with Daniel Vogelbach, I would say, that the stabilizing force in the middle of our lineup that allows us to continue to score runs. He's been fantastic. What a joy to watch. And you're right. What he's been able to do at first base, I think, has exceeded everybody's expectations or at least uh, those on the outside looking in. Uh, Jerry, I, I've always wondered uh, at gyms, and especially when we're on the road, hotel gyms, I've always wondered, Jerry, why is there any need whatsoever for the 100-pound dumbbells? 
right? I mean, who's using the 100-pound dumbbells? And today, Jerry, before we started to record this, I found out those 100-pound dumbbells are for Tom Murphy. Tom Murphy, uh, who is my uh, first-round draft pick for a strongest man competition now, was uh, throwing around the hundies <laughs> today. Uh, he's been a, a really, really great story for the Mariners this year. He's homering uh, essentially every day when he's in the lineup. And now I know why. It must be very easy for him to hit a home run after seeing his workout routine today. Uh Let's take a moment, Jerry. Who the heck is Tom Murphy and how in the world did he become a Seattle Mariner? Ah, Tom Murphy. And, and I agree with you. The hundies are there for – I have to tell you a funny 100-pound barbell story. <laughs> uh, so the the other 100-pound barbell swinger that I've run across in my career was – I don't know if you remember the 1960 National League Rookie of the Year was uh, Frank Howard of the uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers at the time. And Honda, Hondo was his nickname. He became the capital punisher as a at hitting 44, 45 homers a year for the, the then uh, Washington Senators in the late 60s and early 70s. And I believe the dimensions on Frank Howard were something in the neighborhood of 6'8", 300 during his, his playing days. And, uh, and he happened to be a coach on the, the staff when I was with the New York Mets in the 1990s. And Hondo would go into the weight room and, and he's, he's an older guy at this time. So this is, I, at this time, Hondo is probably in his late sixties, right about 70 years old. And, and, uh, he is, would routinely be in the gym curling the 100 pound barbells on a Thursday. And, uh, he would do so in attire that you would find to be pure comedy. I mean, it, it's I, I can't describe it without maybe going into a different rating system on the on the this broadcast system. <laughs> but he would sit in the weight room, curling these hundred pound barbells at, w- with a with a nineteen seventies style Beyond Borg headband on. And the first time I, I saw it, I walked in and I said, Hondo, what are you working on? And he said, I'm telling you, champion, we got a big series coming up this weekend with San Francisco and I got to be in shape. I got to be ready. And it, so at near 70 years old, he's in there curling 100 pound barbells, getting ready to coach third base against the San Francisco Giants for fear that the Giants third base coach, Wendell Kim, who you would have to have seen Wendell Kim in his day to, to remember this, but Wendell used to sprint from the dugout to the third base box and then back after each inning. And when we would play the Giants, Big Frank at 6'8", 300 would, would do the same with, with roughly crippled knees sprinting from the dugout to the third base box. So, uh, that is my other 100-pound barbell guy. But Tom Murphy, uh, Tom was a third-round draft pick out of, the, out of the University of Buffalo, of all places. Uh, not exactly a baseball hotbed. And a third-round pick by the Rockies who went through their system and did some really interesting things at, at almost every level of the minors, most prolifically hitting for power. And, and, and he always did it. He always had a, the, the ability to swing and miss, but he took his walks. He hit the ball over the fence and his productivity in a weighted runs created sense was well above average and at almost every level showed up for a couple of years on top 100 prospect lists. And, you know, it was a little bit of a mystery to us. We've always liked Tom. Uh, we, we thought we were getting uh, or, or thought him to be as a prospect, an average to plus receiver with an average to plus arm with exceptional power who was going to strike out and uh, it, a lot of strengths and a 
a considerable weakness. And, you know, as such, we always kept tabs on him. And we were always, I guess, confused or, or wondered why he never got an opportunity to just go run with it every day in Colorado because we thought he would hit 70 homers playing there. But, <laughs> uh, when he, we, we tried to trade for him this past off season and, you know, we ran up against it and, and I, I don't think the Rockies were willing yet to give up on him. And, you know, we weren't able to, to get a deal across. We went into spring training and Tom destroyed the, the Cactus League this spring. And we were there and watched almost every outing. And when it came down to it and he went on waivers, we were actually full. We, we didn't have a roster spot and we were trying to navigate and, and find a way to get it to, to add him after he had been designated for assignment. And lo and behold, he, he didn't get as far as us. He went to the San Francisco Giants. And, you know, Shortly after he went to the Giants and, and it appeared that, that they had a surplus at catcher and Tom was not going to start the season on their roster. I spoke with Farhan Zaidi and we put together a small trade to acquire Murph and, and brought him over and we just we, we made him our backup catcher. And the, the night that I talked to him when, when he joined, I, I told him, we, we think you're a major league player that just hasn't gotten an opportunity and we're going to give you that opportunity. It's, it's probably going to be in the early part a bit of a platoon but we don't think it's it's a straight platoon and that's the way it's turned out uh i think it has really helped omar in a lot of ways uh i know it has enhanced tom's value to both our team and and i guess his status in baseball it, he's not a backup catcher he's he's a very good everyday catcher who happens to be playing along with another just like him in, in Omar Narvaez and and it's made our catching situation so much uh, I, I guess so much better than we would have expected it to be in June of, of 2019 we, we feel like that's the most stable and I, I guess pleasant development of our season to date is we have two catchers one's 27 one's 28. Both should be here for for the long haul, and and we feel like they complement each other wonderfully well. And in addition to throwing around hundred pound barbells, which I don't think Omar's doing, <laughs> uh, Murph <laughs> Murph does win. We have jokingly in house. Do you remember the 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 nineteen seventies uh, early eighties epic, the Battle of the Network Stars? The it was I, I it was a an awesome show where they would have you know like. Gabe Kaplan from Welcome Back, Cotter, and Steve Garvey of the L.A. Dodgers, like all these TV stars, movie stars, and and athletes, uh, you know Bruce Jenner, and they would get out there in these super tight, uh, high rim shorts <laughs> with a you know with a skin tight tank tops on, and they would go through these you know like an obstacle course, running hundred yard relays, and uh, and in that moment, it was always like. Hollywood's best and most beautiful or at the time the most popular and the same in, in baseball uh, uh, among the players that were being run out there. And I joked around with somebody the other day. I said, you know what? Tom Murphy would have killed it on the Battle of the Network Stars. He had been a had been a superstar on Monday nights on on mainstream TV. Yeah, especially if he was doing curls or the bench or anything else. He's been a beast and he's been a lot of fun to watch. It's a good pickup, a really good pickup. Hey, Malik Smith. He's been fun. Yeah, he really has. Jerry, Malik Smith, uh, right now, riding a 10-game hitting streak as we go into the middle game of the series tonight in Minneapolis. Last night in game one, on base three times. And 
you know, you could go to your first baseball game ever and realize that Malik Smith is the fastest guy out there and how important he is to have at first base or anywhere on the base paths for the Mariners. What is it that you've been able to tell offensively that has been the difference from Alex? Because obviously he is getting on base now like he did last year and like was such the hope for him coming into this season. Yeah, I honestly believe, and Malik is a Malik's a wonderful guy. He has a, a terrific personality. He's energetic. He's easy to talk to. Um, Malik is an awesome athlete. He's a very explosive athlete who has had to learn some of the nuances of baseball through his career, and I, and I think that makes him more teachable than a lot of uh, players that you'll run across at the major league level because it, because he had to learn and. Uh, and it didn't come as naturally easy to him, I don't think, as as a lot of other players. But you know, he is. I, I think if not, he's if not the fastest guy in the American League, he's among the top two or three. You know, uh, Billy Hamilton, D. Gordon. It's a short list, but Malik is among them. He is a an incredibly gifted base runner. You know, both in his ability to get jumps, stealing bases, and and his ability to take the extra base and really put the pressure on a defense. And he has had a history, and this dates back to the day he entered professional baseball. He's had a history of getting on base. He's always done it. He's made good swing decisions and and used on base as his advantage, which if you're not a power hitter, and that's not Malik's game, he has just enough power, uh, but his game is getting on base. It's creating havoc on the bases and, and his overall versatility in the outfield. Um, what we saw when we first got here was a player who I think was trying to prove that the trade that we made for him was justified. I also think it was a player who was on the verge of of entering salary arbitration and was putting too much pressure on himself to do more than he was capable of. And I guess most importantly, we were getting a player who last year was one of the 10 most valuable outfielders in the league by virtue of Fangraph's war. And what we saw for the first you know, six, seven weeks of the season was really not Malik Smith. It was it was Malik Smith putting pressure on himself to be something other than Malik Smith. And once we sent him back to Tacoma, he spent a little time uh, reflecting. He had the time to spend with Mike Cameron, and I think the two of them hit it off pretty well. Since Malik has come back, he's just gone back to being Malik Smith. And 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 I think Mal, he's a, he's a really good major league baseball player who got into a really bad funk because he was trying to do too much. And uh, I guess the old adage is, I'd rather try to reel him back in than than urge them. We've never had to urge Malix. You know, we're trying to reel him back in and get him to focus on just being who he is instead of trying to do something outside of his person. And what we're seeing right now, over the course of the last two three weeks is Malik Smith just doing what Malik does. And, and just like, and I'll use a team reference, just like we weren't as good as a 13 and two start, just like we weren't as bad as the, the atrocious month of May that we had on the field. Similarly, and I guess I, I hope this of our fan base, Malik Smith is a much better player than, than what our fans watched for April in the first half of May. And here over these last 10, 14 games, you're starting to see what he's about. It's getting on base. It's taking walks. It's spraying the ball around the field. It is a very high efficiency base stealer who has explosive speed. And, and I think his outfield defense has really stabilized. And, and as he calms and is taking better at bats, he's not taking the anxiety of those at bats out to the outfield. He's just going and doing what he does athletically. And, 
and we just have to get out of the way and let him be him because he can really play. It's been a big difference. It's been a very big difference from Alex Smith, who tonight will look to make it 11 games in a row with the base hit. And, Jerry, along the lines of tonight, again, game two against the Twins, uh, Scott Service will use an opener for the fourth time this season. And we've seen that happening. Uh, all the previous three have come very recently for the Mariners. And the opener will pitch in advance of Tommy Malone. We've seen Wade LeBlanc get an opener his last couple of times out. And I'm curious, Jerry, how it is that the Mariners – judge the success or failure of the opener process because like when Tampa Bay kind of created this child last year a lot of people would reference the win-loss record in games where the opener was used which makes sense I mean that's I can understand why somebody would do that but it all that almost seems like an unfair metric as simple as it is to judge the opener because as we all know right so much happens after the first inning, the last eight innings, a lot can go on that might ha- not have anything to do with how well the opener pitched or the headliner to follow. So with that in mind, how when you guys have spent the time discussing when and how often to use the opener, how do you judge if it's a success, a failure, or kind of in between? Well, right now, we're I, I guess we're taking the foray into experimenting with this to see if it can help the individual players and, as a result, affect our team in a more positive way. And, I, and I, 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 I'll just say it like I'm thinking it. We started this, at, we're 14th in a 15-team league in earned run average. And we had been in a month-long mire where very often we were down by a touchdown before the game really got off the ground. And, and we had to figure out how to give our team a better chance to, to, to be competitive in these games. And you know, one, of our, one of our issues or the things we were fighting through was that after Felix's injury, uh, we did send Eric Swanson back to AAA, feeling that he was in need for more seasoning. We, we had a very left-handed starting rotation, three of whom had very similar traits. You know, we had three finesse lefties who, by virtue of the way the schedule fell and with a lack of off days, were all throwing in succession. So we had Wade LeBlanc, Tommy Malone, and Marco Gonzalez roughly throwing back to back to back. And when when we were getting into the, these series when, where three of them were pitching against the same team, it really wasn't working out very well for the guy who went second or more particularly the guy who went third. Because now, the, the I guess, the nuance of the opener is that you don't have to face the top or middle part of that lineup three and four times in a game. You know, by using an opener, we're eliminating one trip through the opponent's best hitters for our pitcher. And you know, whether it's Austin Adams or Corey Gearin, we're trusting that right-hand pitcher. And because it was the most recent series that we did it, we did it against the Angels. Now, Corey Gearin or Austin Adams has the, I guess, the the pleasure of facing Mike Trout or David Fletcher or previously Andrelton Simmons or currently Shohei Otani the first time through. And then that allows Wade or Tommy Malone to not have to face that guy a third time or a fourth time. Because history shows that not just for Tommy or Wade, that that for every starting pitcher, when they get the third time through and they're having to face the, that kind of quality of hitter, it, it doesn't usually turn out very well. And there are the elite pitchers in the league who handle it better, but even they have a tougher time when you're getting, you know, to see that same hitter three and four times. It is definitely advantage hitter. 
So we feel like this A gives us a little bit of an advantage. It also gives us the chance to split up, I guess, the monotony of having three guys that are throwing in such close proximity to one another back to back to back or against the same lineup over and over because uh, it puts the second and third guy in such a tough position. And at least by creating a little bit of a different look or a little bit of chaos at the start of the game, we're, we're doing the best we can to offset the, the likeness that these teams are seeing. And the way we're going to judge the success of it is just by watching what's happened with Wade and Tommy Malone. I, I think Wade's last two outings have been his best two outings of the year by a wide margin. He is he has pitched extraordinarily well, uh, both in his last outing and in the previous one against the Astros. And I don't know that it was it's solely attributed to the using the opener, but I do think it helps. Uh, and similarly, Tommy Malone, who frankly wasn't having a, a difficult time starting. But what we we thought this using Tommy and Wade, who had some experience coming in out of the bullpen in their career, was the first step in trying to determine whether this type of strategy had a chance to help us. And I guess I don't want to call it a Hail Mary, but it is certainly we're, we're drawing up plays in the dirt here, trying to find ways that we can make the this group a little bit more competitive than they were during the month of May. And and so far, I think the results have, have suggested it's working. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought up the LeBlanc game against the Astros because you know, the opener gives up three runs in the first inning, and I think a lot of people would just immediately rush to conclusions and say, well, the opener didn't work because the opener himself gave up a three spot before the Mariners even came to the plate. But in reality, LeBlanc was tremendous. The only run that scored was a freakish run. Uh, to say the least. So it, it's a tricky thing to kind of judge, but you're right. And what we've seen, especially from Wade, has been really good stuff. And my only kind of dovetailing question to that, Jerry, is aside from being right-handed in this particular case, what is the attribute or, or attributes or skill set that you're looking for for somebody who would make a good opener? I, I think the opener is you want them to be, either be nuanced like a Corey Gearin, or if you look back at Tampa, what they were doing last summer, it was Sergio Romo. Now, somebody who has a little bit of a different look, a little bit of a different angle, something unique. Uh, and and we would like him to be throwing from the opposite side than the, than the pitcher who's going to follow, but not always. And as it pertains to uh, an Austin Adams, uh, as an example, Austin has awesome stuff. And, and this gives him a chance to develop in maybe uh, we'll call it a medium leverage situation at the start of a game so that he has the opportunity to come in and face the, the other team's best hitters. So I, and I, I don't think I'm, I'm telling anything that's that scouting personnel or even the, the common uh, onlooker might view Austin Adams, if not the best pure physical stuff on our staff, he is among them. He's throwing in the mid to high 90s. He's got a filthy slider. And and the things that Austin can do physically have the opportunity to really play high impact at the back end of a bullpen over time. But as we develop him, there's the opportunity to allow him more medium leverage situations to pitch in, at the start of a game where he is getting the exposure to another team's best hitters without putting him in the high leverage, high temperature mode of pitching with the game on the line in that moment. 
So, you know, from a developmental standpoint, we feel like it has the chance to to really help a guy like Austin Austin Adams. You know, and there are others down in that bullpen now, and that could wind up there in the next let's call it years time that we feel like can really benefit. Like, the easiest thing to do for us would take our best strike thrower and throw him out there to start the game and hope he could give us an inning or an inning and change versus the top of a lineup. But we're trying to use this as as both a strategic play and a developmental tool, if that makes sense. Absolutely. No, it absolutely does. Hey, as uh, everybody knows, a lot of good stuff going on right now on the farm. You should check out Mariners.com slash blog for a weekly roundup of the best performances each and every Friday. And we have to note today on the, on the wheelhouse, Jerry, uh, congratulations to the Arkansas Travelers in the Double A Texas League. What a first half. They clinch a playoff spot, winning the first half title. Uh, we know Evan White, Kyle Lewis in particular, have gotten really hot. Uh, Jake Fraley has been hot since he reported to Peoria. Uh, you must be awfully excited for the success for the Travs this year. Uh, we really are, and you know, it's it, that's back-to-back playoff appearances for the Travs, and and they, they've been really our most consistent minor league team since since opening day. And it is a pretty gifted group. I think roughly one third of our top thirty prospects are playing for the Travs right now. Uh, Jake Fraley is having a close to a triple crown season. He is, he is among the leaders in all the triple crown categories. He's among the leaders in stolen bases. Uh, roughly any offensive category you can create, Fraley is there. Um, and I, I don't think I'd be speaking out of the box to say that he'd be among the top considerations, if not the runaway favorite for the player of the year in that league over the first two plus months. Uh, Kyle Lewis, as we said on this show not too long ago, great swing decisions, hitting the ball hard. At some point, the results would start to follow. And, you know, here they come. He has been, for the last week, 10 days, he has been sizzling hot. And the the balls that were being hit at people uh, are now being hit into open space. He's He's been hot as fire. And we're seeing a, a really pleasant power surge from Evan White, who – throughout has he hits the ball as hard as anybody in the minor leagues and you know it's always been about Evan's ability to lift and and he's doing that this is the progression of player development we think we think Evan White's going to be an everyday gold glove type first baseman and we do believe that he's going to develop power to go along with a plus hit tool and and on base ability and he's one of the faster players in our system you know, Kyle Lewis, we believe, will turn into a middle of the order power bat who, you know, is discerning in the strike zone. And uh, Dom Thompson Williams, who came over in the Yankees trade, is another guy who's OPSing, you know, anywhere in the high 700s to, to closing in on 800 in a league where that is a significant number, especially when you call Arkansas your home ballpark. Uh, our outfielders there have been exceptional. Justin Dunn, uh, Ricardo Sanchez, Darren McCacken. Uh, and what our starting rotation in Arkansas has done has been phenomenal. And we're even starting to see, I don't want to call them, you know, pop-up prospects, but guys who don't get a lot of love when we talk about the prospects in our system, maybe the most notable of whom in Arkansas right now is Donnie Walton. You know, Donnie does a lot of very smart things on a baseball field. He's having a terrific year in Arkansas, and he's a versatile guy who can play all the infield spots. He's a a coach's son who just knows how to play the game, and he's done a great job. So I'm really happy for that team and for our system. Really good stuff going on in Arkansas, which has been fun to see. 
We have another edition of Who Am I for Stump JD this week, Jerry. And I think it's fantastic, and I really like your odds. And I know I say that often, and more times than not, you massively disappoint me. But I feel like you're going to get this one. <laughs> I feel miserable. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is, I'm excited for this. I am one of five players to appear in a major league game in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. From 1970 to 1989, Jerry, only Pete Rose had more hits than I did. Although I'm... 1970 to 1989. I never struck out more than twice in a single game in my career. What? And now, this is going to... To add to that, the strikeout numbers... I never struck out 40 times in a season. 40? 4-0. 4-0. Never struck out 40 times in a season. Correct. Played in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And you were second to Pete Rose in hits between 1970 and 89. That is correct. And although I'm known for playing first base... I was the left fielder who scaled the fence trying to catch Hank Aaron's 715th home run. Left fielder who scaled the fence, Atlanta Braves v. Los Angeles Dodgers. But I am known for playing first base. Bill Buckner. Yes, Jerry. Jerry, I knew you could do it. I, I, I wish you could, could see the, the prideful grin that is stretched across, not my face right now, but Colin's face. Because he was he was worried that I was going to splat on this one like the bug on the back of a windshield. <laughs> I mean, the now late Bill Buckner, who sadly passed at the end of last month, uh, unfortunately – Baseball remembers him only for a gaffe defensively, but what a career Bill Buckner had. I mean, you talk about you know, at-bat-to-strikeout ratio. I mean, his was 20.74. Tony Gwynn's was 21.40. I mean, that's the type of strikeout discipline he had. He finished his career 453 strikeouts, 450 walks, which is just remarkable. That is stunning, and it did, you know since we just came off talking about the farm system and player development, can you imagine how the Dodgers are feeling coming off of a decade in the '60s where they played in and won uh, World Series, coming out of that decade and and watching a burgeoning farm system in the late '60s, early '70s that included Bill Buckner and Steve Garvey and Davy Lopes and Bill Russell and Ron Say and start lining up all the names. It, what a phenomenal, you know, I, I guess, chain of events that led to you went from the the Koufax Drysdale pitching dominant Dodgers into putting roughly a, an entirely homegrown team out onto the field and watching them dominate most of the next decade in that division. I was what an awesome group. 
What a career for Bill Buckner. Uh, and seriously. I hated them, just so you know, because <laughs> I, I, I grew up rooting. I grew up rooting for the, the the Mets in the East, and nobody liked the Dodgers, but they were awesome. And the, and what they did from a developmental standpoint was phenomenal. Well, we've got a listener question we have to get to, Jerry. Remember, you can always email the podcast, thewheelhouseatmariners.com, and you just might hear your question here on the podcast, maybe see it on Root Sports when we are on the television side. Keith in Seattle, Jerry, uh, we have to get to this. Congratulations to you and your entire family. Your son Jonah drafted 35th round by the Royals at a UCSD. Congratulations, Jerry. And he also wants to ask uh, if – how often have you scouted your son? What is your own personal scouting report like on the youngest Depoto in baseball? <laughs> I, first, I'm I'm extremely proud. He's a he's a great kid. He actually graduates. He's a senior. He graduates on Saturday, and uh, thankfully for me and and Tammy, <laughs> he is uh, he made it through in, in four years and uh, with a degree in, in political science. He's he's going out. In, uh, on Monday to start his professional career with the Royals, uh, signed his contract uh, on Sunday, and he is he's as excited as can be. Jonah is uh, he's just a little over six feet tall. He's a uh, six and a half feet tall. He he'll touch up to ninety four with his fastball, and he's got a nice ride when he pitches at the top of the zone. He's got a a kind of curveball slider tweener, like a, a hybrid breaking ball with a really high spin rate that he can throw for a strike. And I don't think he's touched the surface of what he's capable of, uh, you know, as he's bounced back and forth between a starter and a reliever in, in college, I think was pitching uh, to a system that was maybe more keep the ball down and, and pitch to contact. And that's, I don't think that's who he is. He's a little bit more modern, in, in his stuff, I think it'll be a fastball to the top of the zone and use the breaking ball to to get his outs. But he still has to learn how to do that. He's he's young in in learning how to pitch. I've scouted him a million times. I I am so happy for him to get his his you know his chance to do it. I will say that it's really hard for me not to to be biased. He's my son, but I I do know that going in on draft day, I said that you know we when I was in Anaheim, we drafted him out of high school. And that was done as a as a favor to me, as as something to say thank you by our scouts. And I didn't know they were going to do it. And uh, as a result, I was I was a little uh, taken back. I thought it was a great thing. And there was no chance he was going to sign. He was going to go to school. This time, I knew he was going to sign. And I told our guys, it is off limits. We we are not taking my son. Please don't draft him. <laughs> and uh, fortunately for him, there were three or four teams interested and the Royals did pick him up late in the draft and, and he's going to get a chance to play. And And I'm thrilled for him. My guess is I will scout him this summer a couple more times when he gets a chance to go play wherever that is. Now, is there a, a text of some kind exchange between you and Dayton Moore, your counterpart with the Royals or a thing so hectic this time of year that that waits for a slower period? And then it has to make a uh, a fun dynamic between you and another general manager. Dayton actually sent me a text in the 34th round of the draft uh, telling me that they, Jonah, at the time, Jonah was actually pitching. You know, UCSD was playing in the D2 College World Series at the time, and he was pitching the, uh, the eighth inning in their, in their game in, the, in Cary, North Carolina. And Dayton texted me. They actually had the game on, and they were, they were watching him pitch, and he said, he said, just as a heads up, we're getting ready to, to take your boy in the 35th round, provided that, that he doesn't go before. So I, I couldn't have been more thankful and happy, uh, really pumped for him. It was all I could do to not text him. 
and and tell them, hey, leave the mound, listen, <laughs> <laughs> your name's going to get called. But uh, unfortunately, he didn't get to hear that. But uh, he was pitching at the time and and threw the ball well that day. But I, I'm very thankful for the Royals. Very thankful for him getting an opportunity. And I, I know everybody in our family is super excited for him. And you know, my my wife and daughters immediately went out and got Royals gear. So I, they actually bought me a Royals hat. And I said, that ain't happening. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of it, I'm all for. Oh, that is so wonderful. What a great story. And uh, what a baseball family. That is outstanding news. Hey, well, a reminder, Mariners are coming home. We've got two more games in Minneapolis than be in Oakland through the weekend, but then a week-long homestand kicking off with the Royals. And the Baltimore Orioles, uh, Friday, June 21st, Luau Hawaiian shirt night. Um, former manager Lou Pinello, which is good stuff. And then June 22nd, Saturday night, we'll have a turn-back-the-clock night as uh, first 20,000 fans will be taking home a pilot's cap, which actually I believe that's a day game. So turn-back-the-clock day. And then we have Second Chance Father's Day, the uh, one that everyone's going to want to keep in their kitchen drawer for a long time, the Rick Riz talking bottle opener for the first 10,000 dads. So plenty coming up on the homestand. Jerry, it's always great catching up with you. We appreciate the time. And uh, we'll be seeing you back at T-Mobile Park before you know it. Thank you so much, Jerry. You got it, Aaron. Bring a couple home, huh? this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can conquer it i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road any road the steeper the better because my all-new santa fe is available with h-track all-wheel drive so i can hit the trail without a worry in the world Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.